This morning, we continue our reading through the book of Philippians. So hear the word of the Lord from Philippians chapter 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, looking not to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he humbled himself by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and the service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you, and you should too be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. For I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself just as a father with his just as a son with his father he has served with me in the work of the gospel i hope therefore to send him as soon as i see how things go with me and i am confident in the lord that i myself will come soon but i think it is necessary to send back to you epaphroditus my brother co-worker and fellow soldier who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of all my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was very ill and very nearly died. 
but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, sparing me sorrow upon sorrow. For this reason, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him. For he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to give me the help you yourselves could not give to me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. tell you, preaching a sermon is like easy peasy after having to memorize scripture and recite it. All right. On July 17, 2011, I hopped off my bicycle in the courtyard of an old church building on the south side of Ada a small city just north of the Niederrhine River in the Netherlands. That summer, I was staying with some friends in the town of Bennekom, which is just outside of Ada, and one morning while the friends I was staying with were on holiday, there was a knock at the door. It turned out to be my mom's cousin, Cor, who also lived in Bennekom and had heard through the family grapevine that there was a Canadian relative in town. So he invited me to go with their family to church that Sunday. He told me that his daughter, he told me this in very broken English, that his daughter would not be attending church because she had to work, but her boyfriend would come along at about 9.30 to pick me up on his bicycle and we would head to church together. So on Sunday morning, I got dressed, I wheeled out my borrowed bicycle, and we pedaled off to church. Now, I had assumed that because Cor's daughter was working that Sunday, that this was probably not a terribly conservative church, because I knew a lot of my mom's family went to more traditional conservative churches in the Netherlands. As soon as we turned into the church courtyard, I knew that I had made a very terrible mistake in that assumption. Because it turns out that Cor's daughter is a nurse, which is one of the only professions that makes it acceptable to skip church when you belong to the Gereformeerde de Gemeente Church which some of you are familiar with. (laughs) This church is affectionately known, at least in our family, as the Black Stocking Church. And indeed, all of the women wore long skirts and suit jackets of navy or black, long black stockings and closed-toed shoes. And they were all wearing hats. I, on the other hand, was wearing pants, flip-flops, a brazenly bare head, and a bright, frilly, shiny pink top. So there was that. Of course, my relatives were sitting in the very middle of the sanctuary, and so we sat and joined them, and in walked the pastor, followed by eight elders, all men, of course, who sat on the stage facing the congregation the entire service. It did not take long for nine pairs of eyes to find the shiny pink beacon (laughs) in the sea of navy and black. I don't remember a lot about the service. 
It was standard fare of psalm singing, a three-point sermon in, with a song and a second peppermint in between points two and three, which I think personally is a practice we should emulate, and a congregational prayer for which only the men stood, which I soon discovered when I sat down or stood up at the first sign of movement and quickly sat back down again. But I have never forgotten the eyes of those elders as they sat up there, piercing and narrowed as they settled on me that morning. They were eyes that said, you are out of place here. And indeed, sitting before those eyes, I wanted to shrink into the hard wooden pew in which we sat. When you travel around and visit different churches, it doesn't take long to look to realize that church looks and feels different everywhere you go. We have different ways of doing things, different customs, different expectations, different liturgies, different beliefs. I will never forget the story one friend told me in college of joining, he was joining the Greek Orthodox Church. And he was so surprised and flustered on his first visit upon learning that they kissed each other not just twice on the cheek, but three times, that on the third time, he kissed some little old lady squarely on the lips. <laughs> we do things differently from place to place. And even in an individual church, we've got different ideas about how programs should run, what our vision should be, how to interpret scripture, what kind of coffee to use after church, what color the walls should be, what the preachers should wear, how we should handle a budget shortfall, and what kinds of songs we should sing. There's an old Jewish joke that says if you've got two rabbis, you've got three opinions. And sometimes church feels a lot the same. So when we come to Philippians chapter 2, and Paul's plea that the church would be like-minded, we shake our heads and we say, in your dreams, Paul, how is such a thing to be possible? Well, we start by saying that when Paul instructs the church to be like-minded, he isn't saying, think the same thing about everything. This is not about uniformity, and it's not about unity for the sake of unity. Sometimes I think this is where the church gets a little stuck when we think about unity. We talk about how our lack of unity is a bad witness to the world, and so we get anxious about all of the things that divide us on which we think differently, and we try to get everyone on the same page as if that will solve the problem. But unity isn't an aim unto itself, because it's perfectly possible to be unified around the wrong thing. There are plenty of examples in history where groups of people were extremely unified, but their uniting idea or ideology was harmful to others. And so Paul is interested in what it is that we are unified around, in what our focus is. And that focus 
he writes in this chapter, should be Jesus. Verses 5 to 11 of Philippians 2 presents what we today call the Christ hymn. James Boyce writes in his commentary that this passage is among the most glorious sections of the New Testament. In these few verses, we see the great sweep of Christ's life from eternity past to eternity future, and we are admitted to the breathtaking purposes of God. We don't know whether Paul wrote this hymn himself or if he is referencing a piece of the liturgy already being used by the church. But regardless, this is a beautiful piece of poetry that lauds Jesus Christ. It is an ode to Christ. It is a depiction of the majesty of Christ. And such hymn-like texts were common in that day, written about heroes and rulers. There were similar hymns about Alexander the Great, who by his heroic leadership conquered much of the known world between the ages of 20 and 33. Or there were hymns to Caesar Augustus, who put an end to the long-running civil war in the Roman Empire and brought peace and stability to the land. These hymns told of greatness, of military might, of wise leadership. Many of them even proclaimed such people to be divine. This is what heroism looked like. But Paul's hymn tells a different story. In this hymn, Christ does not conquer the world through military might or organizational skill. In this hymn, Christ dies. And this, in the world of Roman heroics and ideals, made Jesus a scandal. And T. Wright says, most people in Paul's world besotted with an idea of the gods into which people like Alexander and Augustus could be fitted without much difficulty, were shocked beyond belief at the idea that the one true God might be known at last in the person of a crucified Jew. It is a shocking idea, the idea that God would die In one of my favorite novels, The Life of Pi, by Jan Martel, a small Hindu boy named Pi walks into a church one day, and he meets Father Martin there, who tells him the story of Christianity, the story of Jesus. And Pi simply cannot understand it. Coming from his Hindu background, he cannot understand this story. He thinks to himself later that night, That a god should put up with adversity, I could understand. The gods of Hinduism face their fair share of thieves, bullies, kidnappers, and usurpers. What is the Ramayana but the account of one long bad day for Rama? Adversity, yes. Reversals of fortune, yes. Treachery, yes. But humiliation? Death? I couldn't imagine Lord Krishna consenting to be stripped naked, whipped, 
mocked, dragged through the streets, and to top it off, crucified, and at the hands of mere humans to boot. Divinity should not be blighted by death, he thinks. Once a dead God, always a dead God, even resurrected. The son must have the taste of death forever in his mouth. Why would God wish that upon himself? Why not leave death to the mortals? Why make dirty what is beautiful, spoil what is perfect? Love. That was Father Martin's answer. Love. Sometimes when we read Paul's Christ hymn, I think we're almost as scandalized as Pi or the ancient Romans. We also have ideas of what it means to be godlike, to be great, to be a hero. And we read these verses, we read that Jesus emptied himself, and we think, well, did he stop being God? Did he, did he give up his divinity? After all, how could God die? How could God let himself die? But Paul emphasizes in Philippians 2 that it is this very emptying of Christ, this total relinquishment of self, for which he was then honored and exalted and lifted high. Jesus did not stop being God in his death. He shows us in his death what it means to be God. Wright says it this way, Jesus regarded his equality with God as committing him to the course he took of becoming human, of becoming Israel's anointed representative, of dying under the weight of the world's evil. As you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is, this is the true meaning of who God is. He is the God of self-giving love. Love. That was Father Martin's answer. So when Paul calls on the church to focus on Jesus, he is calling them to look upon the one who did not act out of power or desire his own gain or deem himself too good, too perfect to endure anything unpleasant, but who gave himself in self-sacrificial love, who was humble, who valued the life of others above his own. And Paul is saying, don't stop there. Don't just look upon Jesus and worship Jesus and admire Jesus for how wonderful and perfect he was. Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century theologian and philosopher, has a fabulous prayer that goes like this. O Lord Jesus Christ, thou didst not come to the world to be served, but also surely not to be admired or in that sense to be worshipped. Thou wast the way and the truth, and it was followers only thou didst demand. Arouse us, therefore, if we have dozed away into this delusion, 
Save us from the error of wishing to admire thee instead of being willing to follow thee and to resemble thee. Paul is calling us to look upon Jesus and then to follow him, to have the same mindset as Christ. This is what it means to be one in spirit and of one mind. He isn't telling us we all have to agree on whether to provide crayons or markers for our kids' bulletins. He's calling us to think like Jesus, to have the same mind as Jesus, to live in humility, to give ourselves in sacrificial love to one another, looking to the interests of others before our own. And so Christ must be at the forefront of everything we do, the beginning of every conversation we have, the foundation upon which all decisions are made. Are we being like Jesus? Has to be the question each of us asks every day in our conversations and interactions with those with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree. Am I emptying myself of all my own puffed up notions of pride and my own wants and my own desires and my own interests so that I can love well. The church asks itself a lot of questions about what our mission in the world is. But perhaps most simply, it is this question. How can we be as Christ to the world? How can we give of ourselves in love? Now, that sounds like rather a taller order than just a green on the color of the carpet. But Paul reminds us in this passage that we have everything we need in order to think like Christ. The first few verses of this chapter, 1 to 4, he poses as a question, but it's a question with an assumed answer. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded. Paul is not asking the church, do you have these things? He is saying, you have these things, so now live like it. You are united with Christ. You have comfort from his love. You all share in the one spirit. And that spirit equips you all, brings you into further fellowship with Christ so that you might grow in your likeness of him. To live as Christ, to give of yourselves, to live in humility and love is so very possible. You just have to want to do it. We have to be willing to open our hearts to the Spirit's prompting. After church in Ada, we cycled back to my family's house for lunch. And they, of course, made no reference to my out-of-place outfit 
or my whack-a-mole performance during the prayers of the people. We laughed and had as much conversation as is possible when neither of you speaks the other's language well. They found out I wanted to be a pastor and they nodded very politely. I've been back to their house on subsequent trips and I've met many more family who all attend black stocking churches and they have all welcomed me into their homes with open arms and loving hearts. We are very different. We have different ideas about what life looks like and what church looks like, but we are family, so we love each other. So it is with the church. We are family, united with Christ, sharing in the same spirit, and filled with tenderness and compassion for one another, which allows us to live in humility, looking to the interests of others, valuing others above ourselves, giving ourselves in love. Because love was Father Martin's answer. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord God, help us to live in love. May we not live out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but value others above ourselves, looking to the interests of others before our own. May we keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus, who showed us what it looks like to love and calls us to do the same. Empower and equip us to follow him, even unto death, so we might experience true life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.